Welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians Podcast. Today, we will be discussing the topic of the Tahaddi Association, which is an association that serves one of the poor suburbs of Beirut, in the south side of Beirut. And today, our guests are Dr. Danny Daham, who is the medical director of the Tahaddi Association. He will be telling us more about it today. He's a family medicine physician who's been at the association for a good number of years and has served this community for for many years now and also helps train uh, family medicine uh, residents at the American University of Beirut who come over and uh, train with him at the association. And our next guest is Dr. Muhammad Ali Jardali, uh, who makes his uh, third appearance uh, today on on the episode. He is currently a chief uh, resident at, in the Family Medicine Residency Program at the American University of Beirut uh, Medical Center, and uh, currently uh, will be finishing uh, very soon and hopefully will be starting his career as a family medicine uh, physician. So thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So thank you again for having me, Khalil, and thank you, Danny, for uh, joining us today. I guess just to set the floor for the listeners, uh, can you tell us why you went into family medicine to begin with? It was uh, a childhood dream as usual. I uh, was very much impressed by a GP that I was uh, in contact with. He was part of the family during my childhood. And I was amazed by all the people he could see and the relief just by talking to people them about things sometimes that they're not sick and sometimes by helping them getting services that are directly related to medicine uh, and he he worked in a rural setting so it was very uh, very pittoresque for me and then i got into medicine uh, and uh, you get sucked up by all the neuroanatomy stuff and all these things and Danny, so can you tell us a bit? I know you ended up at the Tahaddi Association afterwards. We'll talk, we'll talk more about it in a bit. But can you tell us more about uh, what the association does, how it came to be, and who does it uh, sure. serve? Well, uh, Tahaddi Association was created by a uh, French doctor, Dr. Agnès Sander, a Swiss teacher, Dr. Uh, Madame Catherine Murtada, at the start of the 2000s. So they uh, discovered uh, by chant uh, this uh, uh, that down the sports city uh, and uh, at first they were they started like coming with a backpack with medications with some uh, clothes to give away some toys to give away to teach a few things to the children and very uh, fast they uh, rented uh, a few rooms for a clinic and also for uh, for all classes for kids who uh, got uh, uh, left by the education system and organically it started growing towards having more centers and more people working within so uh, it uh, now has a uh, an education center that teaches kids who got uh, left out by the education center gives them maybe five years of basis of uh, math, of computer, of drama, of music, and also has the, our healthcare center, our uh, medical center, 
which provides primary care, preventive care. And uh, we also have a psychosocial center, which provides relief, uh, like food vouchers or any kinds of items that families may need, and as well as uh, social support and psychological support through psychotherapy and group therapy and also job provision like we have our sewing uh, shop where ladies can uh, come and sew face masks uh, or uh, blankets uh, many items that can be provided to the market Uh, and of course they get a job which is very important in our setting so yeah it sounds like uh, the hadi association provides comprehensive care And really, you walk the walk and talk the talk, not only talk the talk in terms of providing holistic care uh, for the patients. So uh, I know this is something that's very tough to do in a country where the system is fragmented, such as Lebanon. So I commend you and everyone working at the Hadi for being able to deliver all types of care, not just the medical part, but also the societal, economical uh, and psychosocial support uh, to the population over there. But maybe you can tell the listeners a little bit more about the social issues of the population, the poverty rates, the education levels. I think the listeners would be interested to know about who the neighborhood is made up from. So uh, the neighborhood is made up of many different factions. We have the Lebanese, some of them who have legal papers, and uh, many of them who don't have legal papers. Of course, this makes a difference of what services you can access, and well, it's, it's very important. We uh, also have uh, the Syrian refugees started uh, coming uh, in 2013, maybe, and who now make maybe a uh, population. Uh, we also have a minor uh, ethnic group, which is the Dom population. The Dom population are uh, similar to the gypsies in Europe or to the Roma population. And so uh, they, only, they not only suffer of the poverty that everyone suffers of, but they also suffer of social exclusion that's typical for the gypsies population everywhere. Now, uh, the area there is uh, basically what you can uh, qualify or describe sorry as uh, as a slum the houses are uh, are slum houses it's an underserved population on all level uh, resources wise water wise electricity wise we, we have an issue of pests we have uh, issues of basic violence that exist in all slums so that would be a really basic description of the area there. Yeah, and and uh, and then Dr. Daham. So how do you guys? How do you serve them over there? So basically, you have the clinic, right? And so do you provide them with free medical care, free medications? How do they do their labs and X-rays and stuff like that? So uh, the the consultation in our medical center, the consultations are free, and uh, we have about. 40 to 50 essential medication present on site. Now, what I must say is uh, the doctor works very closely with the social worker because a big part of providing care there is actually getting the care to the patient because you could sit with the patient, prescribe any medication that you want, any lab that you want, any uh, radiology exam that you want, and he will not be able to do them many, many times. 
So what we do is actually going to the social worker, <clears throat> asking the patient every time, this is what we're going to do. This is the approximate cost. What can you do? What you can do? And we go to the social worker and the social worker first networks him with the right center because we have a psychological obstacle for the people there to go out and to get places because uh, many times they feel they will be misserved. And uh, the second part is the subsidizing. Like uh, many times we will provide either partial or total payment uh, of the exam or of the treatment that we're requesting. So it goes very much hand in hand. You know, and so uh, in family medicine, one of the philosophical dimensions of family medicine is the social aspect. So you have to be aware of the social dimension of the patient that you're talking to. But when we are exercising or practicing in a normal setting, the social aspect is not very far apart between the patient and the doctor. But there, it's like a huge how much difference there are how much we uh, we don't know the resources of the patient. We don't know the priorities of the patients because many times we would be, uh, I don't know, working on hyperlipidemia prevention and the patient be worried about something very different. He doesn't care about that part. So the social dimension of uh, the encounter is is much, much, much bigger than anything I encountered any other place. So this is how it happens. Of course, with time, we netted with uh, many uh, centers that uh, assist us in uh, providing this help. We, we, uh, we discover that the center is friendly to person with poverty. This specialist is uh, friendly, uh, friendly with the persons with poverty, which help us more, refer more uh, easily. Uh, if, if I can give, share my own experience uh, working at the Hadi over the past three years, uh, it's one of the few places in Lebanon where uh, the physician is empowered to do social prescription. So what Daniel was saying about the social worker working closely with the physician, the social worker actually has her own uh, clinic and there's actually two uh, social workers, if I'm not mistaken, last time I was there. And for almost every single case, as a doctor, I would go and knock on the social worker's door and discuss the case with her. Uh, whether it is a case of domestic violence, whether I'm suspecting something of the sort. And even when it's a case of, let's say, short stature in a pediatric patient. So at the tertiary care center where I usually get trained, when we have a case of short stature in a pediatric patient, we run a $1,000 workup. We do all the hormonal panel, the celiac workup, endoscopies. But over there at the Hadi, we just uh, assume first line that this is a case of malnourishment. So we connect with a social worker uh, and then she's able to uh, provide them with uh, nutritional support. And then we're able to reassess them in a month and three months and see if they're back on track and they're uh, gaining a few centimeters, then we know uh, it's because of the poverty and lack of access to food. Same thing with, let's say a patient with diabetes. A lot of the time we're discussing carb count, uh, counting and a diet when the patient's only food access is ramen noodles because that's the only thing they can afford. And they only drink Pepsi-Cola because it's cheaper than uh, distilled water. So we're able to connect with a social worker to make an impact, direct impact on the patient's diet 
which uh, eventually will impact their health. So uh, at the Hadi, they really focused on going beyond the medical prescription and going into the social prescription. And I guess it ties into the philosophy that Daniel was talking about, about the biopsychosocial model care. So uh, it's really integrated into the practice. Yeah, because I think to remember, and you, and then you can correct me too if I'm wrong, but the population uh, over there is 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 very poor actually, and their their income is even lower than the than the lowest threshold of income in in Lebanon, right? And I think a large proportion of them are illiterate too, right? They have not had the chance to even go to school at the right time. So uh, so tahaddi not only helps them from a medical standpoint, but also help them from a, a social standpoint in terms of even helping them find uh, meaningful jobs and meaningful work by teaching them some other things that they can do. Uh, yeah, exactly. We Illiteracy is a big problem and jobs is a huge problem. The availability of jobs and the access to jobs because you, you see what we discovered in Tahadi through these 20 years is how much the social aspect of care is important. Uh, and we learned that progressively, part of it theoretically, but a big part of it organically, and many times voiced by the patients themselves, by uh, people in uh, in focus groups, in person-to-person encounter, where many, many times they say, we want jobs, we want uh, legality of existence. Actually, this would be a major intervention to help any other aspects jobs, legality, and education. It would help the health aspect of everything. Uh, so uh, this is how Tahadi progressively expanded its services towards helping people who, of course, in Lebanon, you can't get people nationalities, but at least you can't get them better papers. Like instead of being totally without any papers, having some kind of pending papers that help them access to more services. Same with education. Instead of uh, being uh, dependent on uh, an education system that's difficult to access in a certain way. I mean, we're talking about illiterate parents who have to teach their children science and math and French, and they don't even, they can't even read. So we need more attention to the child. We need classes uh, that have less than 50 or 40. Uh, students in them, we need more attention individually to each child. And we provide them with actual skills that can help them get to the job market and help them with it, with their daily life, how to be more resilient, how to be uh, more, uh, more communicative uh, in a way that can help you uh, in the outer society that judges you based on criteria that are not always Unbiased. I think what Danny is talking about, I don't think the, le- the listeners are able to understand what it means not to have any documents. And I was very surprised the first time I went there to Hadi and had such an encounter with uh, such a patient, because if you don't have any uh, official document, then you don't exist. So, so in the economy, we talk about the parallel economy and the informal economy, but we're talking about people's lives which the state doesn't establish. They, they, they're, not, they, they're not connected to the state. The state completely ignores them. So if you don't have any official documents, you're not able to enroll into the school because the first thing they ask you when you go to a school is an ID. So if you don't have an ID, you can't 
go to school. And if you get sick, you can't go to the hospital because the first thing they ask you when you go to the hospital is to show any sort of identification. And then it's, it's just a vicious cycle. So if you don't have any official paperwork, your children will also won't have any official paperwork and they don't exist in the eyes of the uh, system. It's a, it's a very cruel system and it's a, it's a vicious cycle. And only a few places such as the Hadi are able to provide them with a parallel economy, so to speak, and an informal education and informal uh, medical uh, intervention. Because if they go to the formal economy, uh, they, they don't exist. No one, no one will look at them. Uh, it's very cruel. I always uh, tell the students when we go there, it, it's only a 10 minute drive from uh, AUB, but it feels like a drive back in time to a different place that doesn't exist on a map. And it's, it, it doesn't exist. Uh, you're going to a very impoverished community. Khalil was asking about the poverty rates. We're not talking about poverty. We're talking about extreme poverty that you only see on TV, on the National Geographic, we're talking about uh, zero, less than zero income for a family of 10. This is an extremely marginalized community and, and uh, poverty doesn't discriminate. Uh, so maybe Danny will maybe talk to us about how the patient populations changed over there and how, what it's like to practice medicine with little to no resources because the, the, the extreme level of poverty, I'm, I'm, I'm at loss of words to explain it to the listeners what it's like to live there and to practice medicine in that community. Yes, yeah, so, so, yeah, so Danny, if you could tell us about that and also touch on maybe if you have some numbers on how Tahadi has improved the situation of some of the people there, and maybe give us an example, an anonymous example of, of a patient uh, whose life was changed uh, due to Tahadi. Sure. Just to give a uh, living example about how things are bad down there, as uh, Muhammad was saying. You know, in 2010, we started cooperating with the University of Beirut uh, Medical Center, and this is how we met with Muhammad. UB Medical Center Family Medicine Department started sending residents and medical students there for uh, training and for service. So uh, it was always a shock, like it was a shock for me <laughs> the first time I went there. So uh, to about the level of poverty, we had uh, medical uh, students and uh, a lady came uh, urgently carrying her granddaughter because she had uh, severe burns on her buttock. And when we asked how did this happen, she said that she sat on a heater. So the medical student was shocked and uh, kind of scandalized. He said, why would this happen? Why, uh, why weren't you watching her? Why was the heater on the ground? Why, wouldn't you, why didn't you put it on the table? And the lady was explaining, she was telling him repeatedly, we have nothing at our house. And the medical student wouldn't understand. He would say, why didn't you put it on a table? And the lady would say, we have nothing at our house. So we went uh, to a ho in a home visit to this uh, house and we all saw, including the medical student, that they literally had the, no, uh, nothing, no, no furniture, nothing inside the room. They had the latrine inside the, the room and they borrowed this heater so they can heat some food from the neighbors and they had one disabled child and one other child with chronic kidney disease that they had to take twice weekly to a hemodialysis session 
provided by a uh, by by someone so this is the level of deprivation i mean a house with nothing in it so uh, th this is why uh, it's hard to apply a common advice and uh, our common sense to uh, to this situation you have to learn from their resources from their experience in order to be able to uh, to provide good services otherwise you'd be just inflicting things on other people and this is how we can actually uh, provide services that touches the people uh, i mean touches lives uh, people lives people's lives in our uh, neighborhood come from a place of privilege and it's very very hard to we, we always say we should put ourselves in the patient's shoes and uh, walk a mile in their shoes but in this case they don't even have any shoes and they come from, from a very different place than we come from uh, i guess my question to you is how do you think our biases affect uh, medical practice i would say it's mainly about priorities difference uh, in priorities and also the kind of image that uh, we uh, uh, our box that we try to put the poor person in a quote unquote poor person so first we have to accept that uh, these people have different uh, sets of priorities sometimes we have to negotiate things like if a person comes with a that are very suggestive of a myocardial infarction, we have to push towards him going to the ER and getting proper care because they live in such a sense of uh, urgency. It's, it's hard for us to understand. Uh, let me give an example. Uh, these are people, I mean, none of us, uh, I presume, ever uh, had to worry about uh, getting to bed without a meal or watching his child go to bed without a meal, or worrying about getting evicted uh, the next day, or uh, having his child fall from a three-meter height and uh, not having a hospital to go through. So th they live in this chronic stress situation where they have to worry about these things, while we don't. Uh, so it's kind of confrontation between two sets of priorities and sometimes we have to accept what they ask for, not when they're when we're worried about an MI or an appendicitis, but many other situations where we where we can provide them what they actually want without them getting harmed. Of course, taking uh, as an example preventive medicine. Preventive medicine is very important, and we try to apply it as much as possible down there. But for them is. Uh, uh, they, you know, they use a lot a, an Arabic uh, proverb that says, Let me live today and uh, I'll see how I'll die tomorrow. Uh, like when you talk to them about prevention, it's, it's kind of a, not a joke, but you know, something uh, beyond. It's like the same problems we had with COVID-19, actually. I mean, talking to them <laughs> about COVID-19 or trying to enforce the, the precautions, uh, they called it, sometimes they called it, it's your disease, uh, like our disease, <laughs> the doctors, not theirs. Uh, they, they, have a, they have a different sense of priorities that we, we have to apply. Uh, sorry, uh, I forgot the basic question. <laughs> what was it? Uh, it was about, sorry, Mohammed, our, our biases as doctors. Yes, yes. And the doctors. second biases is trying to put them in this, you know, uh, Hollywood movie 
of poor person and the and the savior that is us where they are uh, like very uh, poor and nice and they're very grateful at the at the end or something uh, we are both uh, humans and uh, doctors or uh, or providers or whatever and themselves and uh, sometimes we can get into conflict uh, i want this uh, no i can't give you that sometimes they're happy sometimes they're sad it's not like uh, the, the, these movies that uh, kind of stereotype uh, the poor or put them in a place where they should behave in a certain way well i can say after about 20 years of being down there that uh, there is no stereotype people people are people they're they're happy they have their joys their pleasures and coming with the with the idea of i am a savior and you must behave as the as the savior not only doesn't work is also very bad yeah and i think i think i know what Muhammad ali is also getting at the other part of it is when you even when you are in in your own clinic outside of that area let's say sometimes you get different patients coming into your clinic and a lot of us sometimes uh, inadvertently or in the back of our minds you always have uh, biases uh, that you try you, you say i don't want them to affect me uh, but a lot of time you have biases that tend to affect you and i think that's something every all of us should be working on to uh, try to uh, treat everyone as as equal and not have biases with the patients so do you have so then do you have any like numbers I, i know you may not have all these numbers but do you have any numbers of like how many people the clinic has served and 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 how many people the haddi has helped in uh, this neighborhood? Uh, yeah we we have an active population uh, like patients we've seen in the last one year of about the, between 2000 2500 they belong to about 1000 family and we see between 400 and 500 consultation per month we provide primary care services family planning vaccination all free we uh, also provide psychotherapy in groups or in personal psychotherapy I think uh, yeah that's the basic it think as a, as a health center and one more question i have so how do you get how do you get your uh, your funding at this point how do you get most of the funding uh, for the association well we get our funding from many uh, many entities we have small funders who provide assistance for specific services mainly social services and we have the operational funders like the swiss embassies monaco uh, principauté de monaco and we also currently uh, we are being funded with uh, by the unicef so uh, we have uh, all these uh, funders Uh, I just wanted to ask you how the economic crisis and the covid epidemic affected your practice. I know we touched a little bit on it about how it's the doctor's disease and other disease. I know there's a big disparity between uh or a dissociation between the patient's agenda and the doctor's agenda. But how are how are you able to operate uh in the past year? It's been terrible. <laughs> it's been <laughs> I mean We, we spent uh, lots uh, of energy uh, to uh, apply the uh, safety measures for COVID-19 uh, to convince people to apply them. Mainly, it's been it's been the most conflictual 
time and tahaddi's history between patients and uh, and us because different set of priority but uh, we tried as uh, much as possible and uh, we have succeeded i would say maybe 75% to apply these things but many 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 patients are not really convinced they kind of do it just to make you feel happy but they they don't feel the urge because covid-19 is not a disease that uh, kills people on the street uh, and uh, you know it's not that terrible thankfully but at the same time it's not, uh, this is why it's not convincing to this population i mean they they don't see it uh, they see it on tv and uh, it becomes a conspiracy theory so it it has limited uh, a lot uh, how we deliver services but we got around it we developed uh, to our clinic and it helped us a lot we uh, developed a system to uh, send people uh, to get their pcr Uh, to facilitate it to them sometimes to pay for it uh, and uh, uh, recently we've helped uh, because covid-19 vaccination registration is uh, uh, is digital so many people there are illiterate so we're helping them register for the vaccination and they're applying in numbers that uh, surprised that uh, really so uh, yeah <laughs> it was a big fight the covid-19 thing Now the economic crisis you'd think that someone who's already uh, in a very dire situation would not be affected but the, no, it has affected much more people so uh, more people are asking for social assistance the medical social assistance and uh, more people are being helped before that time uh, we would help sometimes people with 25% of their bill 50% of their bill because they knew uh, we knew that they can provide the rest but now it's 100% on many levels and it puts more pressure on our funding to distribute and people are getting more demanding because they're in in distress they're asking for help and the problem is we cannot help all the population that uh, lives in uh, uh, in this area So it's uh, it's uh, tough times more people are providing help but still more people are needing help which uh, makes it more difficult right and this and this, this is an example i think of whenever there's an economic crisis in any country it tends to affect uh, the poor and middle class tend to be affected to much greater degree than the than the rich and i think this is happening in lebanon too they were poor and they even are now affected even more with that and uh, i think you guys have done a good job i guess convincing them about the importance of uh, of getting vaccinated for covid-19 which means probably they're starting to believe that the disease that's affecting them otherwise why would they want to jump in huge numbers to get uh, vaccinated yeah uh, with time with uh, with the latest latest surge uh, they so many persons die in the neighborhood because of covid-19 So uh, uh, this was the point where it started uh, to become more convincing, uh, especially for elderly and people with other diseases. Uh, we did a survey uh, to see how we can uh, uh, target our messages towards vaccination. And uh, we had uh, a, a percentage of the population that's higher than the national percentage who, who wants to be vaccinated. 
what they really needed is just help to fill these forms on Google Form or whatever, uh, <laughs> because it's uh, it's computerized and for them it's very difficult. Great. So uh, I guess this would be a good transition for us to ask you what's the best way to help from inside Lebanon and outside and maybe how people can donate directly to the Hadi Association. Sure. Uh, can I send uh, there is the gogetfunding.com link? Can I send it later or? Uh... Uh, yes, for sure. You'll send it to us and I think we'll, we'll put it on the, on the, on the site once we uh, release the podcast. Exactly. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Danny, uh, Dr. Daham, and thank you, uh, Dr. Jaldari, for uh, being on this uh, podcast. I think, I hope people have learned uh, about what uh, the Hadda situation does uh, and about actually some of the uh, poverty uh, levels that exist uh, in some of the suburbs of uh, Beirut. I think we tend to live far away from these areas, but, but all of us need to be uh, immersed uh, in this and, and try to help out uh, this population of, of uh, patients and, uh, and people. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Khalil. Thank Pleasure. you, Mohammed, for having me. Hope I haven't been too boring. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> No, it was a very engaging conversation, I think. Thank you.